Welcome to the Danish National Biobank podcast. This time, I've taken the only 50 meters walk to the Department of Epidemiology Research for a talk with Bjarke Fenstra, one of our top researchers at Steden Serum Institute, about his new research paper that will be helping solve the puzzle of birth. This piece of that puzzle revolves around certain genes that produce cytokine proteins which seem to work as a sort of biological telegraph used by the unborn child to send word along the wire that it's time to come into the world. My name is Bjarke Fenstra. I'm a senior researcher in genetic epidemiology at Staten Serum Institute. In my research, I work with topics related to pregnancy and selected childhood diseases. So my background is um, in biology and statistics. I studied the two things together um, and I'm particularly interested in um, using uh, genetic information across the entire genome doing genome-wide association studies and other kinds of investigations where I make use of samples from the Danish National Biobank linked with information from Danish health registers. I remember you telling me that mammals are unique. What did you mean by that? We talked a bit about this special thing with mammals uh, giving live birth um, rather than laying eggs, for instance, and that um, the mother has to tolerate that there is an other organism inside of her. It's fascinating to us as researchers how the mother basically tolerates uh, the developing fetus inside of her. Uh, so although she shares half of her genetic material with the fetus, the other half come fr comes from the father. So that half is basically foreign to her immune system. And uh, how can she then um, avoid attacking this developing fetus inside of her. Um, so pregnancy involves a very long anti-inflammatory phase, but then at a certain point uh, the, the fetus is, or the developing child is ready to be born. So then uh, there's a pro-inflammatory phase, which is basically uh, the way that uh, the the, the, the tissues uh, are, are ripening and, and uh, everything is becoming ready for the child to be born. And that's pretty fascinating. It's also particularly fascinating uh, in humans since compared to many other mammals, the contact between the fetal side of the placenta and the maternal side of the placenta is, is very intimate. I think you used the words ingenious cooperation. Um, your research gives an insight into that interaction. Is that right? Yeah, we, uh, we are very much interested in pregnancy. How can a mother tolerate uh, this foreign organism inside of her? And uh, what determines when the child is, is born? Um, so um, from going from a stage where the mother tolerates the child and uh, to another state where the, where the child is, is actually born. 
This new study of yours that's being published in Nature Communications, what's it about? Let's uh, begin with the short version. It's um, very briefly, it's about gestational duration. So how long is a woman pregnant and what is the influence specifically of um, the fetuses, so the unborn child's genetic variation? When is a child born? Is it born prematurely? That is before week 37 of gestation or is it born around week 40 at term or is it even born post-term at week 42 or later? We have um, done a study, a genome-wide association study of this outcome looking at genetic variation in the genome of the fetus, um, so in the unborn child. This is a little bit of a special a situation since it's an outcome influenced both by the mother's genome and by the unborn child's genome. We um, set up a very large collaboration involving 20 different studies from eight different countries um, and a total sample size of 84,000 individuals in the first discovery analysis. Um, here we found a very strong association on chromosome 2 and what we did was then to uh, analyze another 9,000 uh, individuals. What would you say is the most important finding? Uh, for the first time, we are actually able to pinpoint a location in the genome where um, the fetus genetic variation in the unborn child can influence when, at what time it is born. So is it born in week 37, uh, week 38, or uh, at term, week 40, or even, um, even post-term, week 42 or later. What are the implications of that? So we think um, that it's very interesting to try to understand the, gen uh, the biology underlying this genetic association. So um, we have a very robust association signal. We know that at this uh, position on chromosome 2, there is genetic variation that influences when the child is born. But what are the underlying biological mechanisms? We don't know that yet. Uh, we have some hints. Um, but uh, by providing this piece of the puzzle, so uh, it makes it a lot easier to direct further research specifically at these mechanisms. Take us back to the beginning. How did it come about, this study? So we actually started out uh, 10 years ago with a study of preterm birth. Um, so being born before, before week 37. We didn't really find any robust association signals. Um, so many different factors influence when a child is born. So uh, we did not have the statistical power in our relatively small sample size. And we decided that it was necessary to um, make a large scale study. Uh, so we set up a collaboration with uh, 20 different studies from uh, various countries um, and uh, were able to analyze a total of 84,000 children. And with that, we had enough statistical power to be able to detect uh, an association with gestational duration. What were you hoping to achieve and uh, what kind of expectations did you have of the outcome? So we are particularly interested in um, studying gestational duration because it's, um, 
It's important that a child is born at the right time. Being born prematurely um, has, has, can have some serious health consequences. Um, and also being born too late, so after week 42, can also result in a greater risk of stillbirth and birth complications. So we wanted to try and understand a bit uh, better what determines when a child is born. And a few years ago, we did a study of the maternal genome and found some associations there. And now we also find something for the first time in the fetal genome. Can you talk a bit about the method you used and take us through the basic science of it all? Yes, um, so we use the genome-wide association or GWAS approach. Uh, it's a data-driven approach. So rather than focusing on certain specific genes of interest, uh, we analyze the entire genome, looking at millions of genetic variants. Um, and we then see if there is a statistical association somewhere. And when we find strong evidence for an association, we follow up with a replication study. And if it's then confirmed, uh, then we try to understand uh, what is going on at this specific uh, location in the genome. But a lot of uh, research remains to be done after having found um, uh, an associated region. Um, it's still not, there are still a lot of questions uh, as to what are, what are the mechanisms at play. So you found this particular location in the genes of the fetus. What exactly did you find there? So, uh, yeah, so the region um, is a place on chromosome 2. And uh, when we found the association, we, of course, looked at what genes are in this region. So, and there were a lot of genes in uh, the IL-1 family. So uh, IL-1 is short for interleukin-1. Um, and these are genes that um, code signaling molecules that are important in inflammation um, and that are known to be important in uh, pro-inflammatory pathways um, uh, that are central to the process of parturition, so uh, that, that are central to the process of giving birth, basically. So this was very exciting that coming from a purely data-driven approach, we uh, found the strongest signal at a place in the genome with, um, uh, with genes in this family. The location had a very particular name, sort of like an address, is that right? So the strongest signal was um, at what we call chromosome 2Q13. Um, and Q is basically, um, means that it's on the long arm of, uh, of chromosome 2. And the 13 means that it's in band number 13 of the chromosome. So this is back from the days when chromosomes were characterized uh, microscopically. So this genetic location, how does it have the effect on when birth begins, suggested by the association? So in, in this location, there are um, these interleukin-1 uh, family genes. Um, and when we try to understand um, what, is, what is the causal variant, there are a lot of genetic variants even in this region of, of, of the genome. Um, so which one is the causal one that's 
that's a question that's not clear if you have an association signal. Um, and um, we, we then used some bioinformatics tools and were able to predict that um, one of the variants would bind to what is known as a transcriptional um, repressor called HIC1. Um, and, um, and that might be a clue to what the mechanism is. But uh, there are other pieces of the puzzle that we have not found yet. It, uh, it appears of, as if um, the, the, the variant that the associated variant affects the binding of this transcriptional repressor. Uh, we predicted that bioinformatically, but we also did some analysis um, where, where, where we, um, using some special gel uh, electrophoresis technique, where we also confirmed that the, the, the genetic variant binds this repressor. And that in turn then maybe repress uh, the transcription of, for instance, IL-1A or other uh, genes in, in the area. But we don't know the, the precise details there. If these initial assumptions turn out to be the actual case, what will be the real consequences? I think, uh, yes, I, I, I think the, um, the consequences uh, of understanding this better could, in, in the very long run, be uh, maybe that you were able to prevent like prematurely uh, that this, this signaling mechanism uh, from happening and um, it, or uh, conversely if, if um, a woman is pregnant too long then you might be able to, um, to induce uh, labor uh, in a more gentle way than, than you can with current medicines. So um, but there is a lot more understanding of the biology at this specific place that is needed. But we think what is really interesting um, about this finding is that it connects prior knowledge. So we know from previous studies from the literature that these pro-inflammatory cytokines, these are really important signaling molecules in all mammals basically uh, from some, some days or hours before birth. Um, these are upregulated. These signaling molecules are part of a pro-inflammatory cascade, which um, leads to, to, to giving birth. Um, and, um, and, and we think that we might have found some uh, genetic switch in the fetus so that the, the fetus is able to communicate to the mother that uh, now I'm, I'm fully baked, I'm ready uh, to, uh, to be born. Uh, my lungs are matured, uh, I have grown as much as I should grow, uh, so now I'm ready. And then the mother reacts to these signaling molecules and the, the process of, of, of labor begins. So who has the final say, the mother or the child? There are so many redundant mechanisms uh, influencing giving birth. Um, but when we look at it very broadly, it, uh, the, the influence of the mother's genome is larger than the influence of the child's genome. Can you say a bit about the role of the Danish National Biobank in relation to the study and your work as a researcher in general? Yes, um, I think without the samples from the Danish National Biobank, we would not have been able to reach 
a sufficient sample size to detect this signal, basically. Um, not at this point in time. Um, so in the, in the study, it, the study includes almost 100,000 children and more than half of those are samples from the Danish National Biobank. Um, from projects here at State and Serum Institute and uh, including the, the, the ISAIC project. Um, so what we, we, we use is um, we use material from uh, dried blood spot samples uh, taken during uh, routine neonatal screening. Um, so these are taken a few days after birth from every newborn in Denmark. And um, they are of course primarily used to screen for these serious metabolic diseases. But um, the samples are stored and with the, the with ethics committee approvals, we are able as researchers to use a small amount of sample material, a very tiny amount, um, and um, and we can then link uh, the information about who the sample belongs to, to outcome information from the registers. So in this case, um, to information about when the child was born, in which gestational week the child was born. So a part of the samples you used are a reuse from the ISAC project. How does that work? Is it made from new parts of the samples, uh, remains, or how? It's um, it's basically the same data that we use. So um, so no new sample material is is used compared to uh, what what was used in the ISAC project. Um, but once the data is generated, you have data covering the entire genome. So even though um, the primary study objective of ISAIC uh, is to study these various neuropsychiatric diseases. Um, when you have the data available, you are also able to study other outcomes, in this case, gestational duration. Going back to the new study, uh, how do the new findings fit in with the existing research? Uh, I think it, it provides a piece of the puzzle that uh, connects other pieces of information. Um, um, I think we have very solid evidence uh, that something is going on here and also that it's coming from the fetal side and not from the mother. That's a question that we looked into uh, in, in this study as well. So since the mother and child share half of their genome, uh, it might also, uh, it could have been the case that the signal we saw when analyzing the fetal genetic variation could come from the mother. But that's not the case. We analyzed 15,000 uh, mother-child pairs where we had genetic information from both mother and child and were able to uh, show that uh, the effect that we see here comes from, from the child and not from the mother. Um, so, um, so it connects uh, to uh, the signaling mechanism from the child uh, uh, basically communicating to the mother that it's ready to be born. What's next in the field? So, so we are we are actually trying ourselves also to follow up uh, on this study uh, with some focused uh, investigations. Um, we it, it it would be very interesting, and uh, we are, we are in the planning stages of a study that looks at placental samples. So, um, the placenta, of course, is the organ in in the mother that uh, provides nutrients and oxygen to the fetus, and uh, it's. Interesting because it's composed both by fetal cells and maternal cells. So um, we, we believe that, that the fetal part of the placenta is basically basically signaling to the, the 
to the mother uh, that the child is ready to be born. Um, we are doing some focused studies of, of the placenta where we uh, genotype this particular SNP, the, the genetic variant, where we find the association and then look at expression of uh, some of these cytokines. So that's more of a hypothesis-driven study coming out of this. But just to say, and, and, and others, uh, including some of our collaborators, are uh, following up on these findings in, in other ways involving different techniques. So um, just uh, it's very uh, satisfying as a researcher to be able to provide such a piece of, uh, of knowledge that uh, can easily lead to relevant follow-up studies. So the placenta is a sort of communication center between the two organisms? Is that why you're looking there now? It's, uh, it, it would be the obvious place to look, I, I think. Um, um, I go yeah. too far. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think the placenta is uh, quite a remarkable organ, actually. Uh, it's this uh, transient organ, and in humans, as we talked about a bit, uh, it is um, the, the connection between the maternal side of the placenta and, and the fetal side is, is very close. So, um, uh, yeah, so there's a very tight communication and, and connection between mother and fetus. What are the larger perspectives in this? If you were to make some wild guesses to where we're headed. Um, so I, I think some people might, uh, might think now we are able to predict when a child is born, um, combining the genetic information of the mother and that of the child. And I think that's not really the take home message of this study. Uh, we are really very far from that. I don't know if that will be possible based on genetic information, since there's so many different factors that are at play. I think uh, the take-home message is basically that um, we know something is going on genetically uh, in the fetus. Um, we have an idea that it involves the pro-inflammatory uh, cytokines that are known to be central to the process of giving labor. Um, and uh, and we now have some uh, some leads, some starting points for for follow-up studies to really try to understand the processes here. If the fetus can signal to the mother, now it's ready to be born, uh, then um, you might be able to use that knowledge to either prevent preterm birth or to induce birth when a woman has uh, been pregnant for, for, for more than 42 weeks. Uh, so, but that's uh, in a very long time frame, I think. But I think the central take home message is that here is something going on that connects very well to the central role of pro-inflammatory cytokine signaling in the process of parturition. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about Bjarke Finster's research, his study has just been published in Nature Communications. This podcast will be back before long with more research stories from the science treasury of the Danish National Biobank. <laughs>